Assalamu alaikum and welcome to KF Talks, where we aim to represent Muslim sisters from varying communities. We will delve into their struggles and aspirations in the Western world and how they serve Lady Fatima, peace be upon her, and all they do. This podcast aims to provide a safe platform for us to delve into and voice our thoughts on issues that may not usually be readily and openly discussed in our communities. My name is Amina Taqi and I am your host today. And today with me, we have Dr. Amina Aliasin, who is a GP and a fellow in child and adolescent mental health. She has undertaken training in child counseling and coaching, is a youth mental health first aid trainer, and is the program manager of Hikayati, a personal development, mentoring and well-being center for orphaned children in Iraq. She is passionate about destigmatizing mental health and equipping others with tools to actively manage their emotions and stress. Outside of work, she is a mom of two young children and loves interior design, art, and cooking. Thank you for joining us today, um, Dr. Amina Yasin. Considering your role heavily involved in mental health activities here in the UK and in Iraq, like with your Hikayati project, for example, we thought it would be great to have you on for our last episode to sum up the series on mental health after hearing some of the various issues we have, uh, we have discussed and to discuss how vital and central this field is in our everyday lives, for our well-being and in order to live happily and contentfully. There's a lot to discuss um, and we've got a number of different things to go through, but I'll just allow you to introduce yourself first. Thank you so much for having me with you today. You know, it's such an honour to be here. I'm such a champion of like you know, women-centred discussions, especially about these subjects that, as you said, can be really stigmatising, really taboo, not something that we all talk about, but actually something that we all experience. So I'm so, so happy to be here today. And I'm so grateful that Khadam Fatima have taken this initiative to really bring mental health to the forefront of our discussions. And thank you for joining us as well. And like you said, um, it's important for us as women to start having these um, conversations out loud and, and putting them out there um, in our communities. So, first of all, as a GP yourself, um, how do you find the general uh, community's approach um, to mental health? And um, how do you think they react generally when it comes to mental health? That's a really good question. I'd say that in general, not just our community, but in general, sort of the population as a whole has always been a little bit hesitant to discuss their mental health. You know, nobody would think twice before going to a doctor to talk about diabetes or high blood pressure. But for some reason, when you want to talk about your mood or not coping so well, for some reason, it just feels that little bit more difficult. You may feel it might trigger feelings of shame or guilt. And it, you know, it means that lots of people find it harder to reach out. There has been lots of mental health awareness in the last few years. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic also really brought that to the forefront. And as a result, I would say that now I probably speak to as many people suffering from mental health issues as I'd speak to people suffering from physical health issues in my day-to-day -day job as a GP. 
Mm-hmm. And in both, and there's so much overlap, you know. So anyone, let's say, you know, someone might come to me and their, their, their issue is that they're having headaches or migraines, but you dig into that a little bit more and you'll find that there's lots of stress there, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's lots and lots of overlap. People have always been a bit hesitant, but they're opening up. And I think personally, as a GP, I'm really interested in mental health. As you as you said in the introduction, I'm also doing a fellowship in child and adolescent mental health. So I make a real point of asking about someone's mental health in every consultation. And, you know, more times, most of the time, there will be something there that we can discuss and bring out to the open and share. And then either normalize, in many cases, you're normalizing it because it's a normal reaction to difficult circumstances. Or when you know you uncover that there might be something else going on, we can try and find appropriate sources of support. Mm. And and is it the norm for generally for GPs to ask those uh, to ask those questions around mental health, or is it just because you've got a specific interest around it? Mm, it's a really good question. I guess, you know, there are so many different doctors and so many different styles of practicing medicine. But in general, in medicine, it is always gold standard to ask about a patient's, you know, concerns, their expectations, their not just their physical symptoms, but the psychological and the social aspects that might be contributing to their symptoms as well. You know, none of us are, we don't walk around as a kidney or as a brain or as a back, right? Where this huge system of different organs and then of all our thoughts and our processes and then our families and our communities and our cultures and our religions and our identities and this lovely, messy combination that makes us human. And there's no illness that will affect just one thing without affecting other bits too. So it's definitely um, gold standard to probe about all of that and to think in that systemic way. Mm -hmm. And I guess that link is not really... Not sure, but sometimes I feel like in our in our communities or in general as well, that link between our physical health and mental health is not um, widely accepted. Um, I would say that people don't really recognize the extent of it. And like you said, we're not a kidney walking on its own or like a back walking on its own. We are that very complex system. And, and sometimes people's approach to health is very much one, um, you know, very much just the physical approach and to actually mm. you know, start having that cultural shift that it's not physical health separate to mental health or, um, you know, our, sister, our, you know, our bodies and, our, and, you know, us as human beings are so much more complex than, than that. That's not that black and white. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think part of it goes back to the stigma we were discussing, which is just that for some reason, mental health just, you know, it doesn't, it seems a little bit more shameful than physical health. So many people will try and, or, um, you know, resort to thinking about just their physical symptoms. And it may not feel very comfortable for them to explore the other symptoms, but, you know, 
I'm also going to put my hand up and say that also many doctors may not feel very comfortable exploring the mental health symptoms as well. You know, I've got lots of patients with um, chronic pain, for example. So these are patients who will, for many years, have suffered from lots of pain. Sometimes it's specific. Most of the time it's quite generalized. They then start using painkillers in increasing quantities and then increasing strengths and um, you know, they might become quite dependent on many painkillers and, um, and, you know, they may be pressing you, you. These are patients that sometimes present very often to their doctors mm. and many doctors will want to be investigating them more, treating them more, throwing more medications at them. But then I think now there's an increasing awareness that we actually strip it down a bit and we actually try and think about what is it that's really underlying all of this you know especially some symptoms you know like pain um headaches tummy pains lots of these symptoms are very very like you know related to how you're feeling inside as well and you know there's even a gate this thing called gate theory in neuroscience which says that depending on what else is going on it like depending on how your mental state is and what else is going on it can actually affect your threshold for the amount of pain that you're able to tolerate so there's a huge link there's a huge link and i think we'll only really start to be to treat people well when we start to treat both their mental and physical health together. Mm. You know, that reminds me, when, when I was a child, um, before Arabic school, every single night, my tummy would always hurt. And mm. <laughs> I would always tell my mum that, you know, my tummy really hurts, I can't go to school tomorrow. And mm. most likely was, you know, stress or me not wanting to go to school every mm. single next day but it's just funny saying that and just you know you thinking back to some of the things that you you personally mm. been through and how sometimes you know it can feel very real at the moment but mm. I, I mean that's such a good example you know thank you for sharing that you know with children specifically children do so, uh, like they do somatization which is when you feel your feelings in your body like that happens to all, all humans but children mm -hmm. especially because they're not able to really verbalize what it is that their pain you know what it is that's worrying them mm -hmm. and tummy pains are classical for that and you know that pattern you've described of like the tummy pain the day before school or tummy pain that's there all year round but like disappears in the summer holiday that can be really really um anxiety related or you know related to something like wanting to avoid school or um you know another stressor so it's so fab that you bring that up I think you know we all have these examples mental health it's not on and off you know in the same way that none of us have perfect physical health and none of us are unwell in every single way okay the same applies to our mental health we all have our profile we all have our fingerprint you know you know like we there are some of us who may be prone to low mood there are some of us who may be prone to anxiety there may be some of us who are prone to you know having particular like social phobias we all have though and you know we that we all have had our own experiences lots of it is normal when it starts to affect our functioning and affect our relationships and really you know get us down it's you know that's when we need to seek help for it but i think just talking about it and you know making everyone realize that it's a you know it's common it's common 
And it's something that we should be discussing more. I think that's super important. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that people are hesitant to approach you um, as, you know, as a GP or um, they find it difficult to actually open up to to talk about some of their struggles? I would say that um, it's probably a self-selecting group. You know, someone who has called the GP has already taken that first step to open up. People I worry about more maybe people who actually are not even making contact or making that appointment. I'd also say that it's a two-way relationship. And I always try to, um, because, you know, there are many questions in life that dependent on the way you ask them, you'll get the response you need. You know, like if I ask a patient, you don't smoke, do you? Like they're not going to tell me, right? But if I say, you know, um, can I just check, do you smoke? Smoking is very common and it's important for me to know. Um, How many do you smoke? Do you smoke 30 a day? They'll be like, no, I smoke only 25 a day. Oh, okay, perfect. You know, like it's dependent on the way you ask the question, the response that you're going to get. So because I'm very open and, you know, open about mental health, I think people do, lots of my patients do feel comfortable talking to me about it. And I know in our practice, um, you know, eventually over time, you attract a certain demographic of patients dependent on the interests that you have. So I'd say that I do get lots of patients who do want to discuss their mental health. Mm. And and what do you think is the best way to seek help or find that help? I think it very much depends on what's going on. The mm. first, you know, just acknowledging that there's something there which you might need help with is a huge first step, a huge first step, okay? Um, I'd say talking to someone you trust in the first instance, sometimes you just need to speak to a family member or a friend or someone in the community or anyone who can help you get a perspective over whether this is just normal or whether this is something that you need more help with. For example, you know, exam-related anxiety, you know, that's something that everyone or almost everyone will experience. And sometimes all you need in a situation like that is someone to normalize it and to help you to find strategies to calm down in that moment. Mm. After that, so you've acknowledged it in yourself, maybe you've spoken to someone you trust. It's then the time where you try and see if there are any self-help measures that can help, okay? Mm. So with lots and lots of things, there are, you know, self-help measures may be enough. You know, if you're feeling some mild anxiety, maybe looking into whatever it is that calms you down, be it mindfulness, be it meditation, be it prayer, be it connecting with others. Or let's say if you've got low mood and again, behavioral activation. So doing the things that bring you joy a little bit more often, you know, there are lots of things that you can do to help yourself. So I always say then try those. And Mm. give it a bit of time to see whether that helps. Mm. If that doesn't help, so now you've reached out to friends and family, you've tried some self-help measures, it's not helping, that's the time to reach out to a professional. Mm. And in the first instance, I'd say your GP is a good person to go to. So GPs are accessible, they're approachable, you can easily book an appointment, it's free, and they can help to just assess the situation and again, signpost you. If you're feeling nervous about talking to your GP, you can actually even self-refer to talking therapies. Mm. So, um, for example, the NHS has got, if you just Google NHS talk, 
or it's nhs.uk forward slash talk. It's the NHS talking therapies and you get free sessions, usually about six to eight sessions, usually CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, really helpful for mild to moderate low mood and anxiety. That's something you can self-refer to. And uh, there are other counselling organisations as well, which we can talk about. And of mm. course, your GP will be there to think about whether this is something that may need or may benefit from medication mm. and may benefit from onward referral or follow up. Mm. So, yeah, I'd say that's the steps I would take. Just acknowledging it in yourself is a huge step. Maybe talking to someone you trust, trying a few things to help yourself. But then, and really importantly, if that doesn't help, reaching out. Mm. And uh, a big caveat I'd say is that if you feel that your mood or your anxiety or uh, whatever difficult feelings you're having are so persistent that they're affecting your functioning, they're affecting your ability to do your daily tasks, or they are starting to affect your physical health, mm. or they're making you start to have thoughts about self-harm or suicide, then at that point, just cut out the stage of trying to help yourself or talking to others. Just go straight to your GP because mm -hmm. they will be able to help you in that crisis situation. Mm -hmm. And I guess, yeah, that would you say th those are the signs of, of struggles that sometimes we don't necessarily realise? I would say that um, there are lots of signs of struggle and they're very different for for different people, those are obviously the most worrying ones. You know, if someone's starting to have persistent thoughts about ending their life, mm -hmm. if they're starting to make plans, if they're making having inten intention to do that, then um, that's a very worrying sign mm -hmm. that, you know, that's a sign that you need help and help is available. And lots of people feel that way when they're feeling very depressed and it mm -hmm. is possible to recover from that. Talking about it does not make it more likely to happen it's very important that you do share those feelings with you know with a professional so that they're able to assess and to get you the help you need so that's the most worrying sign but then of course there are other signs too you know as we said self-harm some people's sleeping patterns start to change lots you know some people start to sleep more some people sleep less um eating patterns can change you know again some people can eat more when they're feeling having difficult feelings others may eat less some may eat you know in a very restricted manner which again is worrying and needs some professional input some people you know become more irritable or annoyed you know I always talk about this graph which is let's think if if someone if your feet we start off by feeling normal okay and then we start to subject you to difficult situations or stress mm. You start to, in the beginning, there will be these early warning signs, like early warning signs that things are starting to go bad. And those are different things for different people. But you might start to be more irritated. You might start to be less patient. You might start to look after yourself a little bit less. You know, maybe you start to let go of looking after the house or or cooking or whatever else it is that you usually are on top of you might in in that early stage you might notice that you're you know you're dropping some of those balls and then the, if that stress continues to pile on then you will you know it it will the symptoms the signs the, the behavior it will get more and more difficult until you reach that point where 
you are in crisis, okay? So that the aim, we should all really get to know our own early warning signs. Like we all have different early warning signs. So get to know your specific ones. And as soon as you see them starting to creep in, that's when to do something, right? That's when you should put in an intervention rather than letting it get to the point where it's bubbling over. So I know, for example, my own early warning signs that if I start to get irritated, like at things that I usually don't find annoying, let's say someone's left the toothpaste open, that doesn't usually annoy me. If it's starting to really annoy me, I'm like, ah, that's an early warning sign. Yeah. Another one for me is if I start to use uh, to spend more time on my phone. I know if I'm spending more and more time on my phone, that's another early warning sign that I'm trying to get away from something difficult. Mm. so recognize what your early warning signs are and then have your own plan of what you're going to do when things start to get difficult Mm. you know um sometimes I speak about having no having a plan where you have ideas that you can do in 30 seconds ideas that you can do in three minutes ideas you can do in 30 minutes and some in three hours okay so 30 seconds would be like sitting down and doing some really deep breathing or maybe doing some salawat or anything that just calms you down and centers you three minutes might be having a cup of tea just going outside in the garden for a breath of fresh air or maybe you know um, what else could we do in three minutes watching a funny video on youtube 30 minutes could be something like speaking to a friend or family member, you know, having um, having a bath or a shower, anything. You know, for people, it's such different things, right? And then three hours, those are not things you're going to be able to do very often, but bring them in now and again, you know, like having some time alone, going out with someone you enjoy their company. So, yeah, be aware of your graph, be aware of what your early warning signs are, and then have this package of self-care that you can bring in when you need to so that it doesn't get to that point. And if it does get to that point, then you know there is so much professional help out there. And please do reach out. Mm, I love that. That's like that. a well-being plan. Um, yeah, it is, it is a well-being plan. It's actually on a website called Wellbeing and Coping. You can go onto that website, just Google it. I think it's wellbeingandcoping.net. Google it. You can print out the plan and you can fill it in for yourself with your own early warning signs, what your 33, 30 ideas are. And just stick it up or have it somewhere private if you want. And when you're starting to feel that way, you can have it to hand. I've done that for myself and I found it really useful. And that's such a great preventative measure as well. A lot of the times, like you said, it's when we get to that time of crisis that then we go out and seek, you know, that help. But actually to have those plans in place beforehand, before anything happens. And, you know, like you said, when the toothpaste or uh, starts annoying us, that's when we can start referring back to. Um, exactly. Exactly. And it's so useful to... Um, to have those discussions with like other significant people in your lives, you know, be it your, um, you know, your family members, be it your spouse, because it's important, you know, we, you want to know what the other person's early warning signs are and you want to know what you can do to help in that situation or what kind of help you need in that situation. Okay. So my husband and I have discussed our plans Mm -hmm. and I know that, you know, if he's starting to feel stressed that he 
usually what benefits him is not talking about things too much and maybe just mm-hmm. having a few evenings where he can have some alone time, spend time, you know, um, you know, working or doing whatever it is that's really stressing him out so that he can reduce that stress for him. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas he knows that I'm quite the opposite, that if I'm starting to get stressed, that means I need some really good chats and lots of eye contact and you know like you know a deep conversation to try and salvage the situation before it gets worse Mm. yeah that that self-awareness is is really important and you know it's great that um you know you both of you as a couple have that self-awareness but what what would you recommend generally how do people increase that self-awareness about their mental health or that's that's their own personal signs Mm. it's a really good question I'd say there are lots of ways to do that Mm -hmm. one of them is just by reflecting on it yourself you know like take some time print out that plan for example and take some time to really sit down and reflect on the last few times that you felt really low or really anxious or really out of control or very stressed Mm -hmm. and what it was that led to that Mm -hmm. and then how you acted when you felt that way Mm -hmm. and then what the consequences of that were and what you then did to feel better again. So just have that reflective cycle about what went on. If you feel comfortable and safe enough, if you feel open enough to feedback, which I know we don't always feel all the time. You could also ask, you know, other people in, you know, other significant people in your lives, what their feelings are about you, you know, what, what is it that they notice and what it, you know, what it is that, um, they can suggest. Like, for example, I think it, it wasn't me. I don't remember who it was, whether it was my sister or my husband, husband that noticed that, when I haven't had enough sleep is also a time that I can get irritable. So now I know that I need to sleep well. And if I am irritable, then I will immediately, part of my well-being plan is I will immediately um, plan to have three early nights in a row. And that's always like a reset button for me. So yeah, asking other people. And then my favorite one, (laughs) <laughs> which may not go down a treat with everyone, but I think it's a subject we should talk about, is therapy. Like therapy has been transformational for me yeah. and for lots of my friends and colleagues. And it has enabled me to develop a lot of self-awareness. You know, that's what you do. Therapy, you go for an hour a week and you talk about yourself and you talk about your thought processes and you talk about your behavior and what led to it. And you learn so much about your you know, how your childhood may have impacted this, how your culture may have impacted this, how your, you know, how some of your cognitive biases, like your not very correct ways of thinking Mm. may have impacted this. And then that's super helpful because suddenly you realize not only do you develop the self-awareness, but you develop the language to express yourself and you have a safe space where you can um, debrief every week and learn more and more about yourself. But I still find that therapy is still considered a shame um, in our community. And generally that is one of the big barriers that children, um, women, generally people find it really hard to overcome. And you know, we know that therapy is really helpful and it can be life-changing, but initially how, do people, how can people overcome that barrier? It's not easy. Yeah, like I, I, it's not easy. 
I completely hear what you're saying. And I would say that before I had, before I started having therapy, I felt the same way. So I started therapy because I was training to become a child therapist and you had to have therapy in order to train as a therapist. Okay. You need to do that. It's a course requirement. And I remember I turned up to my first session of therapy and I sat down and I was like, I just want you to know that there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just here because I have to be here for my course. So, you know, the therapist basically rubbed their hands and was like, "Uh uh-huh, there must be lots to unpack, you know? So even I had that feeling in the beginning. It's a natural feeling to have. And I think part of it is because we think that therapy is for people who are, you know, mad or bad or, you know, know, people who are very unwell. Whereas when you go, you realize that therapy is just going to be helping you to learn more about yourself. You are the one that does most of the talking in the therapy, okay? In a good therapy session, you probably do 80 to 90% of the talking, okay? Mm -hmm. So you're the one that's going to be talking. You're going to be learning more about yourself. And it's just such a, you know, it's such a privilege to to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it is, it is stigmatized. You know, I've known so many couples who will go through divorce and will not have had couples therapy beforehand because of it being so stigmatized, you know, and it's a shame. It's a shame. If there is something that you can, if there's something that you can do about it, or if there's something that you could do to help yourself, why would you not do it? You know, if I told you that there was this amazing course or this amazing medication that would really help you, you would take it. So if there was, if therapy was one of them, why not? Right. But it's stigmatized. And as I said, I, I hear that and I, you know, I um I have experienced that myself. Mm. But part of me wanting to share my own therapy journey with you is to destigmatize it. You know, mm. I still it's still not something that lots of people talk about. And here mm. I am saying I've had it. Lots of my friends have had it. Lots of people in our community have had it. No, you know, people are benefiting from it, but not many people are talking about it. Mm. But um if you find the right therapist for you, it really can be quite transformational. Um, thank you um, for sharing that as well. I guess the more that we speak about it and the more we're open and honest, um, the more that we can start breaking those barriers. Do you think as a religious community, we are doing enough to combat this or to combat generally mental health issues? And if we are, are we doing it correctly, specifically for our, our religious community? I think that definitely in the last few years or in the last one to two years, there has been a lot more promotion and a lot more, you know, we've had so many more talks and lectures and seminars and like podcasts like yourself. And lots of people are trying to raise awareness about the mental health difficulties. Um, We've also had a rise in sort of culturally appropriate spiritually aware counseling services like we even have now it's the muslim therapists network mcapn.co.uk where you can go and access a whole database of muslim therapists who are available to help with any issues we've got you know sukoon counseling we've got zemzem counseling we've got lots of counselors working from within our communities as well so i think that lots has been done and i do want to give credit where credit is due but of course more can always be done you know more can always be done in the provision of services in talking about this 
and in really trying to, I think, um, upskill different members of our community, so upskilling counsellors and therapists about how to provide culturally appropriate therapy, but also upskilling our community leaders and our scholars about when is something mental health rather than just a spiritual issue and therefore needs to be referred to the professionals, right? So having that two-way sort of upskilling and conversation would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I guess, inshallah, over the next few years, um, we can start, you know, implementing those upskilling of the counsellors, hopefully have more counsellors out there. Um, and, you know, our community is becoming much more aware of it. So inshallah, that, that's that's the goal. <laughs> that's the inshallah, that would be amazing. Um, are there any final words that you'd like to share as we conclude um, the session for today? I think I just wanted to, you know, thank you once again and say that, you know, it's so important that we are talking about these subjects. Mm. And also, I just wanted to say that, you know, for anyone out there who is struggling, you really are not alone. You know, every patient I speak to about their mental health starts the conversation feeling like they're the only one, you know, especially certain groups. Like, for example, postnatal depression is not something we talk about very often. Yeah. Like we are expected to be so full of gratitude and happiness and joy at our new bundle, our new lovely baby. But 10% of ladies experience postnatal depression. You know, there are certain things which are so common, but not spoken about. And all I'd say is if you are struggling don't struggle in silence like reach out reach out to someone who you know to be a safe person to discuss this with be it your gp or if you're not ready to speak to them speak to anyone that's you know anyone trustworthy who you know that you can rely on their opinion and get some help like if there's help out there then why not take it you know why would we why would we um you know, suffer or struggle when there is help out there for us to enable us to become the best versions of ourselves, inshallah. And also remember that, you know, mental health is not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of, it's not a sign of a lack of spirituality. Like I used this example recently, but you know, in Surat Maryam, Mm. Um, when Sayyidah Maryam is giving birth in obviously such difficult circumstances. Mm. And she says, ya hada. Like She says, I wish I had died before this point. You know, that's, that's a big thing to say. That's a huge expression of distress. And if Sayyidah Maryam felt that way, you know, we are allowed to feel that way, you know. We, you know, if Nabi Yusuf's father cried until his eyes went white at the loss of his son, then you are allowed to feel bereaved and to feel sad and to not feel like you're able to get over the death of a loved one. You know, if we have, we have stories of prophets who are, you know, anxious about their being able to have a family, for example, we have so many stories. And um, for that reason, you know, I think we need to reach out for help and to do it with as little guilt as we would feel if we were asking for help for our blood pressure. Thank you, um, Dr. Amina. That's, that's very reassuring to know that you're not out there and you're not, you know, alone out there and you can get that help and that support. 
Thank you very much um, for your insight and we hope this episode has benefited you and has helped you in any way or form um, for all our dear listeners. Please do reach out if you feel the need to and do check out um, on those around you. You'll never know who would appreciate your help um, and sometimes the little things um, that you do brighten up their day as well. As the Holy Quran says, whoever saves a life is as though he has saved all of mankind and those examples that you shared from the Quran were beautiful as well Dr. Amina. Inshallah we will all have the opportunity to help and assist others in our lives. Thank you for tuning in. This is our final episode of the series. You can catch up on our previous episodes of this series on YouTube, Instagram, Spotify and other podcasting platforms. We'd appreciate any feedback and suggestions. Take care until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.